Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14, Gospel of John, 14th chapter. We began last week to look at the first 14 verses of this chapter, and we're going to read that same passage again. Last Sunday, we focused on the first half of the passage, and this morning, we'll look at the second half. John 14, verses 1 through 14. Please give your attention to God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would, know, would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When we began the study of this section last week, I pointed out that really this whole section, the next few chapters leading up to the actual events of the crucifixion of Christ, these next few chapters are really an elaboration of the command that Jesus gives there in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. We talked last week about how the disciples were in a time of, of a crisis of faith. Jesus had been telling them for a long time that he was leaving them, that he would be laying down his life. And they've been slow, slow to understand what he was trying to tell them. But it really here at this point seems to be sinking in that he is leaving them. His physical presence would no longer be with them. And they're unnerved by that. Then, as we saw in the last chapter, he told them that one of the twelve would betray him which obviously unsettled them. And then he said, even their outspoken leader, Peter himself, would deny three times that he knew Christ publicly in the next few hours. So they are troubled. A crisis of faith. Is this little movement that they've given their lives to, is it about to come to an end? Is it about to turn to nothing? 
Is Jesus going to leave them like orphans? Lost, without direction or purpose. We saw last week that Jesus reassured them, saying that he was going to the Father. And we saw last week that that going to the Father meant going to the cross, laying down his life, shedding his blood as atoning sacrifice for their sins in order to reconcile them with God, to God. And he said he would prepare a place in his Father's house for them forever. Well, it's in that context that if you look at verse 8, that one of those disciples, Philip, gives expression to one of the deepest desires that a born-again Christian can ever have. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. Show us the Father. If you are regenerated, if you are born again by the Holy Spirit, then you know to some degree that craving of the soul that Thomas is articulating there. You want to see God. Moses had his own crisis of faith. Remember when he was called to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, came to a point where that movement of God seemed to be falling apart, where In spite of all that God had done for them, the people turned their back on God and they created a golden calf and worshipped this false God. And God was speaking of wiping out his people, being done with his people. And so Moses intercedes and he cries out to God for mercy for himself, for the people, and asks for reassurance that God is not going to depart from him and from his people. And when God says that he will not leave his people... Moses does something very similar to what Philip does here in chapter 14. Moses says to God, please, he pleads with him, please show me your glory. Now you remember that God said to him, you cannot see my face. No sinner can look upon me and live. But he gave him a small manifestation of his glory to reassure him. It's another image, another very clear picture of that hunger, that ache in all of our souls to see God. We lived in Pittsburgh many years ago, and we had a neighbor, an elderly woman, who needed help going to the grocery store. And so I would sometimes drive her down to another part of the city to go to a grocery store. And while she was shopping for her groceries, I had to kill some time. And right next door to the grocery store, there was this big, beautiful, old, stone, Gothic cathedral. And I had never been to churches like that growing up out in the country. And, and I just walked in there the first time, and I kept going back week after week. And I'd go in there to pray, and I'd sit in this quiet, empty sanctuary with the light coming through the, the stained glass windows and just... The, the sense of the majesty and the transcendence, the otherness of God. I remember that. I still burned in my memory is that uh, just a real palpable experience of the presence of God. Many years later, we, of course, moved to Philadelphia. And while I was in Philadelphia, for many of the years we were there, I had an annual pass to one of the greatest gardens on the face of the earth. If you've ever been there, you know Longwood Gardens started by the DuPont family, absolutely gorgeous. Acres upon acres of some of the most beautiful cultivated gardens in the world. 
And I often said that this is the closest that we will ever see to the Garden of Eden until Christ comes back, I think. And while I would go through it, I would go there. I had an annual pass that I could go there every week and I could spend time in prayer. And again, those were times when I first went there of just feeling, just the, the, the air was alive with the presence of God as I was in communion with him there. But the sad thing was that as I went back to that Gothic cathedral and as I went back to the Longwood Gardens week after week, that sense dissipated. As those places became more common and ordinary to me, part of the landscape, I lost that sense of the presence of God. And it was a sad thing. But wanting to have that experience is not only a good thing, it's part of your nature if you're born again in Christ. That deep, aching, unsatisfied desire will be with you until he comes again. It's been with us ever since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because it's sin that has hidden the face of God from us. And until sin is done away with completely, we will still ache for the fullness of that experience. Jesus said, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And we live with that hope. We talked about that last week. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do with that deep ache to experience the presence of God, to see the face of God by faith at least? Well, put yourself in Philip's shoes. Philip was a good, faithful Jew, well taught in the Old Testament scriptures. He understood that, as our own Westminster Confession of Faith says, that that God is a most pure spirit who is invisible. And so when he asked Jesus to show them the Father, that they might see the Father, he wasn't really asking to see an invisible spirit. That's not what he was asking for. Like an Old Testament-style Jew, he's asking for what theologians call a theophany, a manifestation of the glory of God, something like what Moses saw when he saw the, the, the uh, hindquarters, so, so to speak, as the text says. He wanted an experience where he would, in it, with his five senses, be reassured with the presence of God. Something like the angel of the Lord meeting with Abraham or wrestling with Jacob. Something like the burning bush that spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Or maybe even something like the vision that Isaiah had where he saw a representation of the throne room in heaven and the angels gathered around the throne. But scripture makes it clear over and over again that theophanies or miracles of any sort do not turn sinners into giants of the faith. Just think of what the the Israelites did in the wilderness after all the manifestations of the glory of the God that they saw, or even these disciples themselves. How weak their faith was after so many manifestations of the glory of God in the ministry and life of Christ. We saw in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when he said that I am the way, he wasn't saying that I point the way to be reconciled to God and to be with God. He wasn't even saying only that he is the only means to get to God. 
although he certainly was saying that, but he was saying much more. And what we see here in the rest of this passage is that, first of all, he was saying that he is the way to see God. That aching desire, he is the way to fulfill it. Jesus is the way to see God. He says, verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Think about what he means when he says that. That is is just mind-blowing. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, I I ask you to think about it a little more deeply than, than we tend to think about that because he's obviously not talking about his physical appearance. And he's not talking about only the physical eyes of of. Philip and the other disciples. Best way I can think to illustrate it is if, just imagine if I were walking down the street and at the other end of the street there were standing a stranger who didn't know me at all and my wife. And as I walked towards them, both of them would see my physical body. But the stranger would only see my physical body. My wife would see me. Because she knows me intimately. She would see not just my physical body, but really when she'd look at me, she would not see me the same way the stranger would because she would see the fullness of who I am. And so in a reality, I think that's what's going on here when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the essence of God the Father as you have come to know me. Now Jesus wasn't only a perfect human being because a perfect human being, as unimaginable as that is to us, a perfect human being could not reveal to sinners the essence of who God is. He could reflect the glory of God, but even Adam and Eve in their most Before their fall, when they were in a state of perfection, even Adam and Eve, only in a very small way, revealed what God was like. God is so much bigger than that. The essence of who God is. Only a perfect human being who also is the eternal son of God could reveal the fullness of who God is. The essence of him. The statement that Jesus makes here only makes sense in light of what the whole of Scripture, all the rest of Scripture, teaches us about, again, what theologians call the Trinity. It's often been said that the word Trinity doesn't show up in Scripture, but it is taught on almost every page of Scripture. The idea that God is one in essence, but he exists in three persons. John alluded to it in the very first verse of, verses of this gospel when he said, in the beginning, before all things were created, the word, Jesus Christ, was. He existed. And he was with God, and he was God. And there you have the mystery of one God in three persons. That's why Jesus has said over and over and over, and John's gospel is more clear about this than any other gospels. Over and over again, Jesus said uh, things like, I and the Father are one. Or like he says here in several other places, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. He's alluding to that great mystery of the Trinity. What he never says 
is that I am the Father. He never says that, because that would not be true. There is an old heresy that originated in the early stages of the church's development, but it's been around ever since then in different forms, and it's still out there today in, in some uh, heretical churches. The idea that really there is one God, but when, it ta- when we think of the three persons, it's actually just three different forms of God. That there was God the Father in the Old Testament, who became God the Son in the Gospels, and then became God the Spirit after the ascension from that point on. So you have one God in three different forms. Well, all you have to do is think about the baptism of Christ to realize that that's not what's going on, because at the baptism of Christ, you have God the Father speaking and the Spirit descending upon the Son, and all three are there in the same event. I have sometimes heard... uh, Christians and with good intent trying to explain to somebody what the Trinity's like and they've used the example of a, a glass of water. You can take a glass of water and you can turn that glass of water into ice through making it cold or by heating it up you can turn it into vapor so that you could have you three basically water being in three forms. You've got liquid and solid and vapor but obviously that's modalism got to be careful to use that kind of example because the Trinity is something beyond our human comprehension. Why wouldn't it be? We're talking about the essence of the God of the universe, the omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe. His existence is so far beyond our comprehension. Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He's not only saying that he's equal with God but yet somehow separate from God as the Son, But he's also talking about this relationship between them that's existed for all eternity. Tim Keller, in his uh, book uh, on uh, basically defending the faith, Tim Keller calls it the eternal dance of the three persons of the Godhead. And he, he draws this wonderful image. Let me read to you just the description he has from that chapter. He says, there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The idea being that the Father, Son, and Spirit glorify each other. And they're like concentric circles. It's something beyond our imagination, too, that they would somehow be, be circling around each other, glorifying each other in this eternal dance. And what that speaks to is this eternal relationship among the persons of the Trinity, that God is love. When the Bible says God is love, that means he's always been love. He was love before anything was created because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the perfect expression of love themselves. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. He who sees me sees the Father. That's why in verse 7 he says, from now on you do know him and have seen him. He's saying that through what is about to happen, the crucifixion, the atoning sacrifice of his blood on the cross, the resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, through that they are going to fully understand his nature as the Son of God. That brings me to the second way in which Jesus says that he is the Father's revelation to men. He says Jesus is the way to hear God. 
He says in verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Because of this eternal dance of the Father, Son, and Spirit, their minds, their hearts are completely, perfectly in sync. And every word that flowed from the mouth of Christ was an accurate, perfect, full representation of the mind and heart of God the Father. Jesus always perfectly revealed the will of the Father. And he did it through his words. And I only bring this out to emphasize, Jesus here again, as he always does, is saying that if you want to know God, you need to know him through the word of Christ. That's how relationships develop, isn't it? I mean, in this culture, people talk about getting to know each other physically. But we know that if you really want to know somebody, you need to know them through words. Because words express our essence, who we are. And so when you're dating, you have those long conversations into the wee hours of the morning because you're desperately trying to get to know one another as fully as possible. Words are the way that we bond spiritually, emotionally. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the final and ultimate word from God the Father. And to know God intimately to see God in that sense of seeing the essence of God, the means by which you do that is through the word of Christ. That's why Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of, of Christ. Growing in faith is growing in the ability to see the essence of God. And Paul tells us that you hear the word of God, you receive the word of God, and your faith grows by the word of Christ. And Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Allowing the word of Christ, which is scripture from page 1 to the final page of Revelation, allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, and by that means, the word of Christ will reveal to you the essence of God and will scratch that deep itch in your soul the need to see and experience God. Which brings me to the final step that Jesus mentions at the end of this passage. That the way to see and experience the presence of God is not only by seeing Christ by faith and hearing the word of Christ, but ultimately being involved in the greater works of Christ. In verse 11, Jesus refers to his miracles. He says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And we've seen over and over and over that the miracles that Christ did were not done just to impress people, but they were done as spiritual signs to point to the spiritual reality of who he was and what he came to do. The miracles confirmed his words and his unique authority. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Think about that. Think about the works that Jesus did 
And he says to his 12 disciples and ultimately to all of us, you're going to do greater works than I did. Now, obviously he's not referring to miracles. I think a lot of Christians read that and think he's talking about the miracles that Jesus did. And the, the apostles certainly in the book of Acts, they did a number of miracles. But those miracles cannot compare to the miracles that Jesus did. The apostles couldn't feed 5,000 with just a few loaves and a few fish. The apostles couldn't still a storm by just speaking a word against it. The apostles could not walk on water or raise a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. Well, maybe they, Christ could have enabled them to do it, but they didn't. Christ's miracles were clearly, by human standards, more spectacular. So what does Jesus mean when he says you're going to do greater works? He defines greater differently than we do. That's the issue. How does Jesus define greater? We think more spectacular. He thinks the works that are going to accomplish my mission more effectively. That's what he is calling greater. Greater in the eyes of God the Father, of fulfilling the Father's will to redeem his people and transform the world. That's why, and next week we'll get into the passage beginning in verse 16, where he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He starts to prepare his disciples for the Holy Spirit to come upon them because it's going to transform them. And then in chapter 16, he talks at length about what difference the coming of the Holy Spirit is going to bring. Let me read to you just uh, beginning in verse 6 from chapter 16. He says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning the righteousness, sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, that's the greater work is the Holy Spirit coming upon the church that as the church dwells deeply upon the word of Christ and then shares that word with the world, he brings, the Holy Spirit will go before the church and prepare hearts and bring conviction of sin and enable the word of God to transform lives. There is no greater miracle in the eyes of God than the conversion of a selfish, darkened, spiritually dead heart of a sinner to be converted and transformed into a loving, serving disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest work. And that's what his disciples would be involved in. There is no greater joy than sharing the word of Christ with someone and seeing it transform their life. There is no greater joy. I don't care what you search for in this life. That is a deep joy. And it's not only a deep joy, it's also the greatest experience of the presence of God that you're going to have this side of eternity. To not only see Christ in the word, to hear the word of Christ, but then to share it with somebody else and see that same word of God transform their life. There you will experience deep, powerful presence of God. It's in that context that verse 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
Christians rip that out of context and turn it into a justification for a name-it-claim-it theology that if you just ask God, Christ for anything, he'll do it for you no matter what you want. That's not what he's saying. In this context, he's saying in fulfilling the mission that, that God the Father has given to the church through Jesus Christ, ask for whatever you will and I will empower you to accomplish it. That's what he's saying. And that was the experience of the early church. We talked about the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church and 3,000 people were saved. Think about that. 3,000 people saved in one day. That's more people saved in one day than the entire three-year ministry of Jesus Christ. And it all came about because back in chapter 1 it says all these were were in one accord and devoted themselves to prayer. God's people gathered together, prayed, and the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people were saved and Jerusalem was transformed. That's the way it's been happening ever since. That's the greater work that God's people will accomplish by his grace. Somebody sent me a few months ago a video that was done recently about a mission work. And I've seen a lot of mission videos in my life. But this one was just so well done. And it was nothing inherently different about it, but it was just so well put together. And basically over the course of a half an hour... It showed how a group of, I think, about four or six missionaries received a call to go into a, to an unreached tribe. I think it was in New Guinea, I'm not sure, but to go to an unreached tribe and bring the gospel. And it took them for the time when they came together as a team and they made their way into this unreached tribe and established a presence there, built an airfield so they could connect the tribe to the outside world, began learning the language and then having learned the language to then turn around and start to teach them and particularly begin to teach them the word of God and then as they learned the language be able to actually translate the word of God into their language and the half hour video ends with this big celebration event the entire tribe coming together to celebrate as the Bible in their own language is first delivered into their hands and it was just powerful if you've ever seen anything like that. And I thought about it say, that's what Jesus is talking about here. That, in a nutshell, is what's been going on for over 2,000 years. God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, taking the word of Christ and watching it transform an entire culture. And that's what we're about here in State College. It may not, and as a matter of fact, unless God sends a revival, it's not going to happen in that nice little half-hour package that I saw in that video. It's not going to happen easily. It's not going to happen that quickly, probably. But it is happening. It's happening all over this community. And Jesus is saying, you want to experience the presence of God? You want to scratch that deep itch in your soul? Then immerse yourself in the word of Christ and then go out and share the word of Christ with others and you'll experience that transforming power. If you're truly born again by the Spirit, then your deepest desire is to see God face to face. And one day you will. But until then, to know him fully and intimately, you need to know Jesus Christ. Because in him you see and hear the Father. And in serving him and doing the greater works that he's called you to do, you experience his presence in a very powerful way. Let me close by just reading to you these very familiar words from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting that desire in our hearts to see your face. Thank you that you have given us an unquenchable desire, one that will only be fulfilled when we see you in all of your glory, when we are perfected, when Christ comes back again to take us to be with you, with him, with the Spirit, with all our brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. Father, that is our hope. Lord, deepen our devotion to the word of Christ and to sharing it with others that we might be sustained with your presence even in this fallen world, even as we continue to struggle with our own sins. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.